0: John chapter 17, we spent some time there last week looking at glory. Uh, Chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Uh, we looked at that at length. We're going to actually, and I know it's going to be a big surprise to you guys, we're going to start in verse 1 again this morning. Um, Because we specifically looked at glory, remember we had the slides on there and talked about Uh, the UY Scooty, the biggest star that's observable in the known universe. And there are probably bigger ones out there, but we call it the biggest because it's all we know, Um, which I think is funny. But we looked at that. We looked at how big the universe is and that God sets his glory above the heavens, above all of that, that his glory is very, very important. We looked at the fact that he doesn't share his glory with us in the sense of us Uh, we are not created to contain glory. It's not something that our human form does well with. It becomes vain the moment it enters in. And so he says, no, it's for my glory. Your life is not to be lived for yours, but for mine. And and we looked at that in length. I'm not going to go through that again. But as as we're looking at this great high priestly prayer, and as I go through the first five verses again, we're going to do this again. The reason why I'm going through them again is I want to do this in in light of the greater context of the passage now Uh, we're not going to focus on glory as much we're going to cover it but uh, in in context of the greater passage of this great high priestly prayer remember i talked last week about what a priest's duties were in the old testament he represented god to the people and the people to god he was sort of an intermediary and yet if we study the book of hebrews we see that that priest was just a man and subject to all the frailties that men and women are. And and so part of what is put forth in Hebrews is that we have Jesus as our great high priest, not after the order of Levi, because the Levitical tribe was the ones who had the priestly line, but after the order of Melchizedek, this mysterious guy that shows up in the Old Testament, uh, and Abraham pays tithes to, a theophany or a Christophany, if you would, an appearance, I believe, of the pre-incarnate Christ there way back when Abraham's returning from the war with the kings and all that. Uh, I love that story. At any rate, so we look at this great high priest that we have, Jesus, God the Son, as being infinitely greater. Now he has become our high priest. There is no longer an earthly priesthood. That that ceased uh, when the old covenant was wrapped up. And now we have this high priest in Christ, and we see in this high priestly prayer the, the real Lord's Prayer. Talked about that last week. The other Lord's Prayer, we call it the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, is really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer because it's a pattern. They said, tell us how to pray. And he said, well, this is how it looks. Father in heaven, holy is your name. And he goes through the whole deal. You see that there's some similarities because the pattern that he gives in prayer, it's not a, it's a bad thing, it's a great thing. I mean, I love that passage in Matthew. But this truly is the Lord praying, the, God the Son praying to God the Father. And, and he begins by praying about being glorified, and, and we'll see that the only way that the Son can be glorified is if the Father answers this prayer, and he does. And, and, and that we'll see as we go on that in the second section that what he does is he begins now to pray for his own, to pray for his men, the men that were there. And he specifically says, I'm not praying for the world. That doesn't mean that he was minimizing. That doesn't mean that he was rejecting. It means that he was specifically praying because he has been spending this last five hours grooming uh, and, and imparting these precious truths and and preparing his men for carrying on the work that he had himself been doing and had been preparing them to do for three and a half years. And now in these final hours, these are the final minutes that Jesus has in the presence of his men before the men come and arrest him. He's giving them some extremely critical information. It's just, I mean, packed. And and as he's done that, he's wrapped up his ministry with the people. Now he's wrapped up his ministry with his men and now he turns his face upwards He says he looks up towards heaven and he begins to pray. Powerful, powerful prayer. Most pro- powerful prayer in all of the Bible. Uh, and, and we'll see in the third section that we won't get to today, because I know me, uh, <laughs> that we won't get there today. Uh, but in the third section, he actually prays for you and I. He, he prays looking down through the ages. And it's, it's it's just remarkable to me that this prayer contains that. Uh, one of the guys I love to read, I, I read different people. I, the way I study, I'll, let's give you a quick overview. The way I study is I will just look at the passage. And then I'll look at it some more, and I'll look at it some more. And I'll just pray. and just and I, and I do that for a long time before I crack open any other book. Uh, because it's important, and say, Lord, speak to me. What is going on here? What's happening? And and the way I look at it in, in my mind, in my mind's eye, as I sort of imagine a a stage. And okay, so Lord, what are the props on the stage? What's going on? What what does it look like? What's the background? And 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 then okay, you know, what are the props? What's going? What's the history? What's the culture? And and, and then, Lord, who are the players in this? And and then. How do they interact? What's the story? And finally, what what's the bottom line? What's the application? What's the, the 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 point of the whole thing? And and then I'll start looking into different commentaries and reading different men. I, I love what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. I, I see further when I stand on the shoulders of giants. And there are some giants in my life, men of God that have gone before me. And, some are still living, most are not. But uh, this one guy, his name is G. Campbell Morgan. He said this about John 17. I, just, I came across this and I thought, man, I've got to share that with people. He said, I would ever be careful lest I should appear to differentiate between the value of one part of Holy Scripture and another. But no one will deny that when we come to this chapter that we are at the center of all the sanctities. I, and what that means is that this is the pinnacle. This is something that I mean, when Jesus prays this, there is nothing like it in the God in, in the Word of God. And, and that, uh, yeah, he's saying, you know, I'm not going to do favoritism between one passage of Scripture or another. And yet, there is something very, very special about John 17, uh, very special. And and we do well to to acknowledge that, to heed that in our own lives as we apply this to ourselves. And so. As I talked about, the field's been getting narrower. If you think about it in that sense, that as Jesus has been going along this last uh, bit of time in his life, uh, and I did a, a more lengthy recap last week, not going to do that again, but, I mean, he fi- he wraps up his public ministry uh, and, and then comes into Jerusalem, you know, the triumphal entry and all that. And he wraps up his pub- public ministry, and then he begins to pour into his men, and then as he wraps that up, He turns and he begins to speak to the Father. And this is truly, I mean, you know, if you ever see people doing movies or whatever in Hollywood, is that they'll get to a point where they're all done, where they're finished. And, And the director will say, that's a wrap. Well, this is Jesus giving this whole thing a wrap. He is wrapping it up. He is about finished. And he's finishing his entire earthly ministry with this most powerful prayer to the Father. Uh, we looked uh, at part one last week, at glory. And I, I remember I gave you a definition that it's a verb. It's an actually it's an action word. And, and it means to elevate. Primarily it means to elevate, to to lift up, and to make glorious by bestowing honor. And so we look at it as, as it, when Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me. And through that, I can glorify you. It's it's bringing honor, one bringing honor to the other. And and, and Jesus being lifted up, literally lifted up. We looked at that. Uh, And I think when I look at all of this, these first five verses, it really strikes me as that what is my takeaway? And it's really like, if I can't do it for the glory of God, I probably better not do it at all. Uh, Because we're told that Jesus said, I have done nothing except to glorify the Father. His entire ministry was marked by consistently 100%. No, we don't do that. But we're all in process, aren't we? We're all growing in our relationship with the Lord. And my goal, my desire is, is that I could bring him glory in my life. I don't want the light to shine on me. That's ridiculous. I mean, there's a lot of creepy things that it would show. But my point is, is that it's for his glory. And if we're not about his glory, we really need to check our hearts, folks, because that's part of what he has given us to do is to shine the light, to, to, to honor him with our lives. Very often he brings us to difficult places in our lives. And I'm not minimizing the difficulty, not at all. Sometimes life is tough. Sometimes we go through circumstances that are just, they look impossible to get through at times. I've got some circumstances in my life with my brother and his poor health in Seattle, not knowing if he's going to make it. And yet I know that God's good. And I know that he has my brother's best at heart. I know at the end of the day that I can rest because my brother's life isn't in my hands. It's in his and I want God to be glorified through it, whether he lives or not. See, so that's the goal. That's the thing. It's part of what Jesus is demonstrating to his guys here. In verse 17, or in chapter 17, we see more clearly than probably any other passage or scripture, we see the heart of Jesus because he's pouring it out. We see his mind and we see what's important to him. And so as we go through here and we tag the bases we, and we're, we're spending an ever so brief amount of time in John 17 and yet there are so many powerful things I would just encourage you, listen for what the Lord would speak to you because part of what Jesus says here is I've given them your words and that's the word rhema and it means the spoken word and he does speak to us, we've talked about that and that as he does that we know that it's not going to not line up with the rest of his written word, with his logos but Allow the Lord to speak to your heart. Allow him to minister to you where you're at. Allow him to perhaps pour some salve on those wounds that you're kind of nurturing and nursing along. Allow him to work in you and through you as you reach out to others whom you love, others that are perhaps in your sphere of influence. Because this world, you know, I was talking to Harvey not long ago, and there is really nothing that needs to happen for him to wrap this whole thing up. We are at the end of the age. Uh, I, I'm absolutely more convinced than ever. And yeah, I know that people have been saying that since Jesus went to the cross. And yet we look when you look out and you see the signs of the times, you see the things that Jesus said would be taking place on the earth, and you see the, the, the rapid growth both in intensity and frequency of the birth pangs that he forecast would come about, you see that we are truly at the end of the age. And uh, we of all people need to be the ones the, the ones that he talks about the bride having the wick trimmed and being ready for the groom. How do we do that? We stick close to Jesus through thick and thin. We stick to him even when things look tough. It breaks my heart when I see someone go through a crisis and get mad at God. That, And, and we've probably seen that if you've been a Christian for any lengths of time at all. And yet... I know that He's working in those things, I, and I just I can't encourage you enough. Lean into Him, allow Him to minister to you by the Spirit. He does; He's faithful. Interesting in uh, also in this chapter, we're going to get to it pretty soon. Um, also in this chapter, we see the word "give," "given," "gave," different forms of the word gift 17 times in this chapter. Uh, And pay attention to that as we go through, or as you read it on your own, because it's significant. We know that salvation is a gift. Uh, We're going to talk about some some interesting wordplay in this chapter as we go this morning, because we're going to see that we are God's gift to Jesus. Usually we look at that the other way around. We look at Jesus being God's gift to us. And yet that's not what's said here. Yes, it's absolutely true, but it's not what's said here in the text. So in verse 1, it says that Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Uh, Again, to honor. It's interesting here that Jesus asks he prays for the Father to be glorified. Uh, something that I, I can't miss in looking at this is I look at the, the the tenderness and the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son, and that Jesus is pouring his heart out to his Father. And yes, we know that they are co-equal, that it's God the Father, God the Son, and, and God the Spirit in all, with the triune God, the Trinity, and yet positionally, When Jesus emptied some of the powers he had as God, he never emptied his divinity fully God, fully man the entire time. And yet he set aside some of the powers he had as God in order to be in subjection to the Father. That there is a relationship here that is very tender, that's very intimate. And Jesus had enjoyed this relationship for his whole life. He had had unbroken fellowship with the Father. And now he's going to face the most difficult thing in his humanity that he ever had faced. He's about to go and wear the wrath of God for us. And so he begins, he says, glorify your son. Uh, Also in this, it's the son can only, as I mentioned, he can only glorify the father as the father answers this prayer for the father to glorify him, for the father to honor him through him being the one, through him being the sacrifice once for all that would go to that cross that would die to take our sin. Fabulous truths. Verse 2, you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. There's that word given. Given. You've given him authority over all flesh, and that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. You know, there's, there's one of the things I avoid are the controversies that people make Uh, in this case, it's very clear that he's talking about predestiny. You have given him. It's very clear that he's saying that that's already taken place, and yet we know that human will is not out of the question. It's not off the table because God predestines. And we'll talk about that more as we go along. I was talking with somebody the other day, When you look at free will, some call it Arminianism, that's the theological deal, kind of the the father of that whole theological debate on that side. Or Calvinism, the the predestiny that grace is irresistible and atonement is only for the elect. Uh, I just can't get on board with that because the Bible clearly teaches both. God predestines and we choose. You, 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 both of those truths are accurate. Both of those, and they seem in our human frail minds to contradict, but they don't. Because one truly falls apart without the other. If it was all predestiny and no human will involved, then we might as well be automatons. You know what that is? It's a robot. Somebody that's programmed to love God. And that doesn't make any sense. And so if it was all Free will, then, and God didn't have anything to do with it, then what's the point? I mean, it, you, one falls apart without the other. We have to understand that these work in concert with one another. And so as Jesus talks about predestiny here, what he's talking about is, yes, you have given me these men. But when he called them, like when he called them standing at the seashore, the fishermen that were out there, they could have said no. They had the free will to do it. Because it adds value, infinite value to the relationship when people say yes. When people say not my will, but yours be done, as Jesus, our example, did in the garden. And so very important that we not get twisted up and not get off into the weeds of dogma in these things. But that we understand that God, I think he actually wants us to struggle over some of these doctrines because he knew the clear aspect of it. And yet it's very important that that we come to a conclusion, that we understand that both of these sides of these theological arguments are true. I was talking to somebody the other day, too, about uh, can you lose your salvation or or is it yours eternally? And you guys know my standard answer to that is don't ask me about yours. As for me, I'm secure eternally Uh, because that's a personal thing. And I'm not going to get off again into... uh, nitpicking details. And, and, and besides that, if, if theologians, great men of God with great minds have argued over these things for centuries, I really don't see the point in me trying to jump onto that argument. I think that it's, I'm just good with what God's word presents. It presents both sides. Uh, Chuck Smith used to say, do you want to know if you're predestined? Choose Jesus. Pretty simple. Uh, and because if you choose Jesus, then it's like, well, I'm predestined. That's pretty cool. That didn't take a whole lot of thought. Uh, And we get so caught up in these things. uh, It sometimes really derails the main point of the conversation. He says you've given him authority over all flesh. It's interesting, and here's a principle too for you if you're taking notes. If you reject the authority of God, human authority will emerge. And it will set itself against God. When we reject the authority of God in our lives, human authority, my fallen nature, will assert itself. I will climb upon the throne of my heart if I'm rejecting his authority in my life. Isaiah chapter 47, uh, up in the studio on Thursday morning, the guys were studying chapter 47. We were looking at this. And one of the passages in 47, it says this, For you have trusted in your wickedness, You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. I think that's interesting. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Isn't that the attitude of the human heart, of the self-governed person, of the person that is spiritually blind to the point of wanting to organize their life their way and according to their rules and according to their construct? as opposed to simply submitting to the authority of God in our lives. He does a whole lot better job. I'm convinced. I've been walking with the Lord for about 35 years. He does a whole lot better job governing my life than I do. I tend to mess it up when I take the reins, but uh, it's good. And, and so yeah, Jesus here, when he, he says that you've given him, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh, uh, and then I should give eternal life to as many as you've given me. Um Verse 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I'm going to read something to you that I came across that I thought was really interesting. It's this. Life is active involvement. Life itself is active involvement within the realm or environment of one's existence. Death, you think about that. I mean, think about in Bible words, the kingdom. Kingdom means king's domain his realm, his environment, and and, and all. And, And death is a cessation or absence of involvement with one's environment, whether it be physical or spiritual. Eternal life means that we are, by faith in Jesus, alive and active to God's realm. If God and his spiritual environment does not affect and even dominate our life, then it can be said that we do not have, nor do we experience, eternal life. If this is true, then if we choose to live life in the same dimension that animals live, we exist as if we are dead to God and to his environment, his kingdom, his realm. When Jesus was before Pilate, uh, and we'll, we'll get into it more in the next chapter, in, in chapter 18, uh, in verse 36, six, we read that Jesus answered Pilate, and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, the, the, The Greek word there is cosmos. It's talking about the physical world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now, for now, my kingdom is not from here. The New American Standard Bible renders that my kingdom is not of this realm. And if you belong to Christ, your membership is in heaven. There is a realm that coexists with this physical realm that he dwells in, and that's part of why prayer is so important, because we're reaching across the divide, and, and, and we're putting our lives in his hands, and he's governing our lives, and by his Holy Spirit, that's why that has to happen, because that's there. So that what that does, it begs the question, when does eternal life really begin? When I die? When I go to heaven? No. No. If you belong to Jesus, your eternal life began the moment that you transacted with him in a big way and gave him your life, gave him your heart. You were added to his kingdom. You were added to his realm at that time. And so often I know that the Lord has brought me up short at times because I'm acting like this, this earth is the only home I'm going to ever have. And we slip into that, don't we? We slip into thinking it's like, you know, this is it, you know, or into our own thinking on things in our own way and, and all of that. And, and we just, brothers and sisters, we do so well to remember that we are in our eternal life. Our membership is in heaven. It's not on this dirt ball. It's there. Uh, and, and I mean that sincerely. I mean, there's some beautiful, wonderful things about life and about this planet and all that. And yet, by comparison, it's not much. It's very dim compared to the light of his glory in his kingdom, in his realm. And we're part of that. We get to be. And what a wonderful blessing it is to know that I don't have to be subject to this. Jesus talks about that more as we go here. Verse 4, I've glorified you on the earth, and I've finished the work which you've given me to do. So how has Jesus glorified the Father on the earth? I mean, we know that he's wrapping things up. Every sermon that he preached, every miracle that he performed, every blind or sick person that he healed, every bit of instruction and training that he gave to his disciples, Every confrontation when he squared off with the religious leaders, those corrupt guys. Every question that he answered. Every loving touch. He did all for the glory of the Father. I've glorified you on the earth. His entire life was based in that. He says, I've finished the work. Interesting. Jesus sees here, he he has not yet gone to the cross, but he sees the work is already being finished. Uh, It reminded me, I was looking at that and just kind of marveling and thinking, wow, you know, he's looking at this. And he's, I mean, he is definitely in the shadow of the cross. There's no question. It's hours away. And yet, as he's praying to the Father, he's saying, you know what, I finished the work. So does that mean that he had it? No, he sees the cross. He knows what he's about, and he knows what he's about to do. Uh, in Revelation chapter 13, John, same guy that wrote this, but here later as he gets the, the, this vision, this apocalypse, the, uh, the revelation, one of the things he talks about in Revelation 13 is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So did God predestine that as well? Yeah, he did. Jesus knew why he was born. He knew what he was about. He knew what his mission ultimately was. And so here, as he prays, "I finished the work." He knows. Verse five. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is a it's a distinct and clear declaration of the preexistence of Christ before the world was, uh, before there was any world, before there was anything at all. Uh, It's the same as saying that he existed from eternity past, that he's he's stating his eternal nature here as God. And so, uh, Father, uh, give me the glory that I had with you before the world was. After I go through this, I want to come home. We talked about that last week. And, And let me come back and resume my rightful place at the right hand of the throne. Part two, his own. The second section of this prayer is where Jesus now shifts from talking to the Father about glory and about what's ahead and about what what he's about. He he shifts now to, to praying for his men. He knows, we've looked at this many times in the Gospel of John as we've been going through, uh, that That he knows that as the, the emphasis on him, as the light that's been on him, the glory that's been on him, he knows that as he comes off of the scene physically, that all of the hatred that had been directed at him is going to be directed at his men. He knows that the animosity and the difficulty and all is going to shift from him to his men. And now he's just all about, Father, I'm I'm wrapping this up. And I've got to put these men in your hands. Because what I'm about to do, they're going to be upside down about. And so in verse 6, he says, I've manifested, I've revealed your name to the men whom you have given me uh, out of the world. There's that given again. They were yours. You gave them to me, and you, they have kept your word. Uh, when he talks about your name, remember, we've looked at that. It's, it's indicative of character and, and of purpose, uh, resources. It's, it, when he says, you're, you've, I've manifested your name to them, it's not just, hey, his name is Father, Abba. That's not what he's saying. He's saying all that's behind that. Your person, who you are, what you're about, I've revealed to them. They were yours and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. It's interesting to me. Again, the wording here, as I mentioned a little bit ago, is, is Jesus is talking. To, he's saying, Father, these men are a gift from you to me. I think that's remarkable. I had never really thought about that. Uh, until I began to really kind of get down into the details of this passage and that uh, Christians often think of Jesus as God's gift to us and he is. I mean, he's he's God's gift to humanity. He's the, the solution to that which we could never do in ourselves and yet what he's saying here is, Father, thank you. You've given these guys to me. So let me ask you a question with that in mind. How much value do you, do I, have in the Father's sight? How much value? I love what one guy said. He said, Jesus didn't die for no junk. We have great value. You know, And there was a sort of a theological stance that was kind of sweeping through the church a number of years ago. And it was, it, I, I came to affectionately call it worm theology, that we're just kind of wormy, we just can't ever get it right, and God just feels sorry for us, and so, you know, it's just like this whole thing. It's like, no. No, you have great value in God's sight. You have such great value that if you were the only person born, he'd still gone to the cross. That's value. Uh, you're a gift to Jesus from the Father. I mean, that applies to us as well. And I just want to encourage you in that. Verse 7, now, they have known that all things which you've given me are from you. So, yeah, they've been taught and they've believed. For I've given to them the words, Ramah, spoken word, that which you have given to me, and they've received them and have surely known that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's all that it requires. They have believed. John 16, we covered this a few weeks back when we were in John 16, uh, where Jesus says in verse 27, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. To me, again, you remember, we've talked about it in times past, and perhaps we'll study it one day. I love the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the writer there is talking about the children of Israel. When they come out of Egypt, and in chapter 4, he says, you know, the word that they heard from God through Moses didn't profit them because it was not united with, by faith in those who heard. Sort of the opposite is what Jesus is talking about here. The word that they've heard has profited them because it has been united by faith in these men. And he's saying, thank you, Father, that and I thank you, Lord, that you love them because the Father loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I mean, that's essentially, that's the essence of what our faith is. Uh, it's the active believe again this word believe is pistuo it's 92 times in the gospel of john it's huge it's the kind of faith that's being talked about here that creates action it's not mental assent it's if you thought the building was on fire. You wouldn't stick around. It would create action. You would, if you believe that, even if you don't see smoke and you don't see fire, you'd be out the door. And that's the kind of faith that he looks for. Not just this. Oh yeah, I believe in God. How many times have you talked with people and you know in your heart, in in, in your knower, that they don't know Christ? Well, I believe in God. Well, my God, when I hear that, I just kind of cringe inside. It's like, oh, well, your God probably isn't the God that we have to do with. And yet it's true. Uh, True faith produces. James said, show me your faith. I'll show you my works. It's not that we're saved by it. It's that real faith produces real works. It produces a real change. And out of that, we're saved not by our works, but unto good works. Verse 9, I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. Now, Jesus is not, he's not being indifferent to the world here, but he's praying for those who would be instrumental in reaching it. Remember, that's his goal. That's his mission is to reach a dead world and to, to pay the price for sin that whoever would choose to could actually come to eternal life. That's the context of this passage. That's what he's talking about here. His men would soon be the ones that would pray for and begin to reach the world. And that's the same work that has continued to this day here and in churches, countless churches across the land. It's the same work. It's the same message. The message doesn't get old. We're not going to try to come up with some new thing. That's why our church will always be about the gospel of Christ. Our church will always be about the grace of God being poured out that my response to that grace is the way I conduct my life because it's for his glory. See how this all hooks together? A uh, marvelous passage here. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter, on the other side of all of this, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, and freshly on the other side of the Holy Spirit being poured out. I mean like the Holy Spirit's poured out that day, and he stands up and begins to preach. He says this, men of Israel, he's talking to the people in the world. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, and listen to this, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So when he talks about Jesus being crucified, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Again, as I was looking at this, I was just thinking about Jesus there in the garden, praying, and as we mentioned last week, talking about, you know, he is so stressed. He is stressed to the point of death, looking at the fact that his physical death was imminent and saying, Lord, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, nevertheless, and we talk about him being predestined, predetermined to do this, And he's saying, if there's any other way to not do this, he knew that he was predestined for the cross, then let it be done, but not my will, but yours be done. He's talking about, and he's not talking about his deity. He's not speaking from his deity there in the garden where he's stressed to the point of death. He's speaking from his humanity. He's speaking from being a man who is enduring these things. I can't imagine, and yet I marvel. At the clarity, and in and, and Hebrews again tells us that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And it didn't mean he was disobedient. It meant that right here, right now, in this garden that he would be in shortly, that he would learn obedience. If It's not, not my will, but yours, Father. Let that be carried out. He was being obedient to what he knew the Father's will was. We do well to do the same. Of course we're not Jesus, but we he has revealed his will for us. Uh, he has revealed his will for us to live lives that are set apart. And we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes as we wrap up this morning. But uh, it's just wonderful that we see predestiny and free will working in concert, even with in the person of Jesus here. Uh, wonderful truths in all of that. Verse 10, and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. Again, stating his co-equality with the Father. Uh, three persons, essentially one God. Uh, they're ours. Uh, He says, I'm glorified in them. I'm honored by their faith, by their lives. And the sense of this passage uh, really is this, is those who are my disciples are yours, is what he's saying, that which promotes my glory, my honor, will also promote yours, Father. I pray, therefore, that they may have the needed grace to honor my gospel, my words, and my word, and to defend it and to proclaim it among men because he knew that's what they would be being commissioned to do. That's what he's praying to the Father for now. He knows he's going to be off the scene shortly, and he's praying earnestly for these men that they would stay with it, that their faith wouldn't fail, that they would come into a knowledge that they were in the Father's hand. And he goes on to say that I haven't lost any of them. He says in verse 11, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. So Jesus is we're seeing now this this deal where here's the father being one with Jesus and Jesus being one with the father and now. Jesus is saying, I, my, I'm praying for them that they may be one as we are, that I'm in them, they're in me. And, and, and we'll get into that, that wording more next week. But there's this, this wonderful uh, product of this prayer of, of oneness, he with the Father, us with him and and carrying out his work carrying out his will and that's what he was commissioning these guys to do and and ultimately the great commission for us uh, he says that maybe these may be one as we are it's not a union of nature he's not saying that they would be one as we are that they would have our nature as far as you know all the omnis and all that yes we get his moral attributes but it's 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 the union of love for one another that's what he's talking he's he's addressing god as his father and it's it's a it's a union of plan and purpose that that they may be one as we are that they would have the same mind the same heart that we do in carrying this thing out And, and so he's beseeching the father uh that they would have the same union the same purpose the same heart as he shares with the Father, that we would share that with him. Verse 12, And while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Again, uh, character, purposes. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Does that fascinate you as much as it fascinates me? He says, I've kept them, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Judas is a frightening example of how closely one can walk with Jesus. One can be, it can, how close one can get to the kingdom and still be lost. He was with him for three and a half years. He saw the miracles, he, he received the teachings, he had all of the same things that the rest of the men had. And it wasn't just because he was predestined to be the son of perdition. It was that he chose that. And yes, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Again, the, the scripture predestines Judas as the son of perdition, but that didn't let Judas off the hook. He chose to betray the Lord. He chose the path that he took. And he was right there the whole time, physically with Jesus Christ how much more closely could a person walk and still be rejecting in their heart? Uh, to me, that's just, it's, it's remarkable. Another thing about that, when he talks about the son of perdition, a common saying in those days, was if somebody was the son of someone, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew writes that Jesus, he refers to him as the son of David. The son of Abraham. And what that was, is it was a way of imputing character to someone. That The character of that person would be the son of, would be, uh, it would be in accordance with the word or the name which followed. In other words, remember James and John, they were called sons of? Thunder, yeah. Because they were boisterous. <laughs> we, we read in the Bible about the sons of Belial. Uh, what that means is worthlessness. Uh, You and I have been given the ability to be sons of God. uh, That that he shares his nature, his character with us. That we could be partakers of the divine nature as sons of God. And here, the son of perdition. A reference to Judas, the son of hell, having the character of the destroyer. And that's what's intended with this. John knew perfectly well what he was writing as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this. And it's not lost that he is called the son of hell, the son of the destroyer. Verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. How many times has Jesus talked about joy in these last chapters that we've been looking at? How important is it to him that we understand that part of his revealed will is for us to live a life that is above the circumstances within which we find ourselves? I I struggle with this at times, guys, and I'm just being transparent with you, that, that there are times where I get bogged down in the circumstances and, I, and I'm just like, I, and I start to stress, and I start to strive. And, and you know I me, mean? I, I don't like it when I'm striving. I don't like it at all, and, and that's because that's an indicator that something's not right in my relationship with the Lord. And, and so what I realize is that I'm not—what that has done is it shut off joy in my life, because now I'm living according to my circumstances instead of living according to the Lord. Because joy, true joy being communicated to my soul from the Holy Spirit— is, is far above happiness. I'm not happy in my circumstances, and maybe you're dealing with some really unhappy stuff today. Allow the joy of the Lord to become your strength, because then you're relying on this thing called joy that He communicates to our spirit, to our soul, to our who we are, that gives us the ability to live above, because happiness communicates via our circumstances. Our circumstances may or may not be good. But the the Lord always is. And so he's saying, I'm saying these things that they may have my joy fulfilled for themselves. He's getting ready to go to the cross and he's joyful. Hebrews 12 again says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And and brothers and sisters, it's God's will that we be joyful people. We should not be the person that when somebody's life bumps into mind, they get grumbly. And, and there are times where the Lord, the Spirit of God, checks my heart and gives me a literal an attitude adjustment. You're not walking in joy. And I, and I pray that for myself. I pray that for us, for you, as a, and for us as a church, that, that we could walk in the fullness of joy that God offers. It's a birthright. It's not something that you earn. It's a birthright. It's part of what is provided us as children of God. Verse 14, and I've given them your word. No, I'm running over again. Oh, well, sorry. Uh, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the, the world, just as I'm not of the world. And, and decades later, John would write this in First John. He said, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Every single sin that a man commits falls into one of those three categories. The attitude of the world is lust. It's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's what drives the world. That's what drives this godless place that we live. And so often we get critical of people because they're acting out of the nature, the only nature that they know, when they're just simply being faithful to the nature, to the way that they know how to live. And it's like, I think I was telling somebody the other day, We as Christians need to elevate the conversation. It's not about going around talking about how bad everybody's being. I don't ever want to be the church where we just talk about what's wrong. I want to be the church where we talk about who's right. I want to be the church where we talk about what edifies, what builds up, not what tears down. And I don't want to be the church where we are doing the black hat, white hat thing. We've got the white hats because we're Christians and the world. They've got the black hats. Oh, you, know, you guys, if it's not for the grace of God resting on each and every one of our lives, we've all got black hats. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and we should be praising God that in this weird relationship between predestiny and human will that he got a hold of us and that we actually chose him. And our job is not to go out there and condemn the world. They're already condemned. Ours is to go into love to show the love of Christ, to to pour into people, to, to get them to understand that there's this beautiful relationship available that offers not only eternal life, but that eternal life starts now. And a product of that eternal life is joy. A product of that eternal life is love. A product of that, I mean, the fruit of his spirit. That's what we get. And so let's not be the ones who go around condemning other people for acting in the only way they know how. Yeah, of course, when things are not right and somebody does something that's not right, I notice and I might pray for them. I might even have to say something because, you know, sometimes things can't go on. I'm not not saying that we just turn a blind eye. What I'm saying is let the the overwhelming attitude of our heart be love and, and, and to build up, not to tear down. That person will continue to act like that until and unless. They receive Christ. And that's our job. It's never done. What does the Bible tell us about repentance? That it says it's the kindness of God that leads someone to repentance. You want to see somebody repent of sin? Yeah, go beat them up and see how that does. (laughs) Love them. And and, and sometimes we get that wrong. We think that, that accepting people is the same as endorsement. No, I I don't, I'm not, I will not endorse someone's sin, but I can accept them. I can accept that that they're someone for whom Christ died. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See. Real attitude adjustment that I get in reading through this passage, we're not going to finish it uh the whole thing. Well, maybe we will. If you'll hang with me a couple more minutes, we'll we'll see about that. <laughs> Yeah, let's wrap it up. No, let's not. See, I'm undecided right here. Um, Verse 14. I think I just covered that. Yeah, I'm giving you a word. Verse 15. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should... Uh, keep them from the evil one. Notice that the word one is in italics. It's added for translation purposes. Literally, it says that you should keep them from the evil. And and boy, howdy, we live in an evil world, don't we? I mean, you don't have to take long looking at the headlines to figure that out. Uh, But the thing that's interesting here is is Jesus says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. That's not what this is about. But you keep them from evil. Doesn't that sound kind of like, the disciples prayer deliver us from evil yeah like i said there's a lot of parallels in this Uh, but this is the true concept of separation it's living a separated life he's called us to be separate to be set apart and he's saying no i'm not calling you to be set apart physically i'm doing that i'm going to the cross and then i'm going home and i won't leave you as orphans so you get to live a life that's set apart Not set apart physically, but set apart spiritually. Set apart dynamically for my use. Verse 16, and they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. And and remember in John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And that's his whole point in this last few hours is saying, look, all of this stuff is going to fall on you. That's been fallen on me, except for the cross, of course. But the mistreatment, the hatred, the enmity, the hostility, it's going to fall on you. It's going to come to you because I won't physically be here. He says, you'll know that that the world hates you because it hates me. And if you're of the world, the world would love its own yet because you're not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. That's just good advice. Not everybody's going to love the fact that you're a Christian. As a matter of fact, very often when people know that you're a Christian and your light so shines before men, you don't have to say a word and you sense that they're repulsed. Get used to it. It's part of living in a fallen world. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So there's two meanings for the word sanctify. And I will wrap this up rapidly. We're almost there. We're going to go through verse 19. The first meaning of the word sanctify is to render as pure okay, Uh, to cleanse. Uh, We were sanctified at the moment of our conversion. We were cleansed. And that's how come the Holy Spirit can come in, because we are a cleansed vessel. We were sanctified. We are being sanctified, practically speaking, as we go. We're all in process, as I mentioned. And part of what that process is is the process of sanctification. The book of Romans has a great deal to say on that. I'm not going to belabor it here. But that's part of the, what it means to, when he says to sanctify them by your truth uh, it's to render us pure, to cleanse. The other meaning for sanctification or to be sanctified is to be set apart or to be consecrated. Two meanings, one word. He says in verse 18, following the context here, he says, as you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. Uh, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been given and, and he's handing them off. Now, this is truly Jesus handing these guys off to the Father. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, verse 19, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So the wordplay here is is the the same word for sanctify in both senses. He says, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Both meanings come into play. There's wordplay in the sense that doesn't come out in the English, but That's dictated by the context. The Greek word is hagiazo. And what he's saying here is I consecrate myself. I I set myself apart. Exclusively to the service of the Father. That they may be made pure or cleansed or made holy by it. So what he's doing here, what he's saying is he prays for his disciples. He's saying for their sakes I cleanse myself. that they also may be sanctified, set apart. By the truth. And so he is setting he's letting them know you are being set apart. And you're being set apart because of the work that I'm doing, that I'm I'm accomplishing, for my father's pleasure, for my father's will to be carried out. And that's how he's praying for his men. The application to us? You live a life that's set apart? Or you just go go along with the world and this is kind of what you do on Sunday. I'm not saying that condemn or to place guilt on anybody. Uh, as I mentioned, we're all, we're all on a road. Uh, uh, we're all in the process of sanctification, being sanctified. And, and I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that allow him to do his sanctifying work. Allow him to produce in you a life that is set apart, that doesn't look like the world, that looks like Jesus. It's part of the work he said the Holy Spirit would do. He's, remember, he says he'll convert, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will guide you into all truth. And he will glorify me. How does he do that? Through your life and mine. For the glory of God. Living our lives for the glory of God. And if there are things I'm involved with that are not glorifying him, there are things that I need to let go of, that I need to let him have his sanctifying work in my life. That's the goal. That's the process. That's the Lord that we serve. Does that mean that he's going to be more pleased with me? No. He is infinitely pleased with you, with me. His grace is poured out. My response to that grace is to want to live a life that's in accordance to his words and his word and that's in cooperation with the sanctifying work of his holy spirit we're free we don't have to walk around with a dark cloud over our head but as we apply his word to our lives our lives are enriched number 1 we're not living according and being tossed around by every circumstances that we're in we're living with joy and and, and the world that's watching and they are watching sees something really different about us. What is it that's, that's about your life uh, that I see that's attractive? And that's always an open door for us to share him with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for this time of your word. Oh, Lord, we could just go so much deeper in this, this prayer of Jesus. And, and yet, uh, I trust that you've given us enough that as we have these handfuls of truth being heaped out from your word, that uh, I pray, Father, that that we know that your word doesn't go out and, and come back void. So I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be touching hearts here this morning, people watching online. Pray, Father, that you would accomplish that which you desire to accomplish in each of our lives. We know that's a different thing in each of us, uh, Lord, and, and unless it's salvation, and that's something that's a big thing. And so, Father, I pray that you would have your way with us, that you'd find hearts that are yielded to you, that are are, are just in love with you, Lord. And the response of that is that we simply want to do your will and see that your glory is held up. We commit ourselves afresh to that end. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week.